0: Welcome to the London Business School Responsible Business Podcast. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance here at London Business School, and I'm delighted to be joined by Londa Cortines, Partner and Equity Portfolio Manager at Wellington Management. Londa co-manages the Wellington Global Stewards Fund and the Wellington European Stewards Fund, and she's also Vice Chair of Wellington's Investment Stewardship Committee. Uh, so Jolanda, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So to start with, could you say a little bit about the characteristics of these funds that you manage and your investment approach?
1: So the funds that we manage are core, uh, balanced. They're low beta portfolios of ESG leaders. The stocks need to meet the double criteria for returns and for stewardship that lasts the test of time. So the fund is concentrated. We have a really high bar for inclusion, uh, low turnover, and a very long investment horizon.
0: So you launched this fund in in 2019, and what was the client demand that that led to the launch? And what do you hear about clients from what they're really looking for from the fund?
1: We spent a lot of time talking to clients, and and it was really their desire to have a portfolio that balanced returns and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really what launched us onto these funds, stocks that could be held for the long term and and deliver returns for the next generation. And the investment approach that really prioritized active engagement with companies.
0: I mean, and and on that kind of active engagement point, I mean, you've described the philosophy as as investing in companies that demonstrate great stewardship and and that sustain returns over time. How do you define stewardship and how do you go about assessing it or measuring it when deciding to invest in a company?
1: So that's a great question. I think stewardship is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but defining it is, is actually quite critical. Uh, It's about preserving and growing the value of a company for future generations. And so companies that are strong stewards, in our view, have an empowered board, a strong executive team, they're superior capital allocators, and they balance the needs of all stakeholders in the pursuit of profit for the long term. That's that's how we like to summarize it. Uh, We do use tools like scorecards because there are qualitative and quantitative aspects of stewardship, and we try to be as rigorous and repeatable in our process as possible.
0: And I mean, you talked about a number of dimensions around how stewardship helps there in terms of oversight, capital allocation. And so overall, how is it that you see stewardship translating into value over the long term? Is it mainly about increasing returns or is it about reducing risk or is it a bit of both? What are the kind of channels, if you like, by which you get value from stewardship?
1: It's absolutely about both. So it's about increasing returns and about reducing risk. So, superior risk management and oversight, that's going to reduce the volatility of returns. Think about it like a strong audit committee or a focus on climate risk or cyber risk. Getting these things right is going to improve the ability of a company to compound over the long term, and it's going to drive more resilient companies. So that's the risk side. But we're also looking for companies that are investing in their stakeholders, that see the value in investing in talent, in R&D, and in innovation. And all of these improve a company's ability to adapt and to grow over time. It can strengthen a moat, help with pricing power, help grow the addressable market, and it might reduce turnover costs. So all of this is part about building the returns piece of the equation as well.
0: And how do you as Wellington go about exercising your stewardship responsibilities with these companies that you invest in? Is it mainly about engagement with them or are there other mechanisms that you use?
1: So, I mean, it is part of a fiduciary responsibility. I think about having a duty of care to our clients to invest their money responsibly. But in turn, I look for companies that are exercising that duty of care in the way they manage their business. And we can engage and build two way dialogue. We can use proxy voting as a tool. There are tools for escalation, there are proxy voting guidelines and engagement guidelines. But it's really about sharing best practice and encouraging change.
0: And in that kind of area of encouraging change, when you've spoken about the importance of engaged boards in in their role as stewards for your investee companies, what sort of questions do you ask boards to get a sense of whether they're acting as stewards in the way that you're wanting them to?
1: So boards outlast management. I think that's important to start there, right? Boards are the everlasting oversight of a company, and they're there to set long-term strategy. They're there to weigh in on large capital allocation decisions. And they're assuring uh, that a company is both resilient and adaptable. And so, understanding how that board challenge works on a day-to-day basis is critical. We ask about oversight. We ask about the consideration of all stakeholders. What type of uh, trade-offs the board is making? We want to understand how the board works and what skills are in the room. And we want to know where the board is spending their time. I think these seem like simple questions, but they're fundamental to understanding what a board is doing.
0: Yeah, and and, and if you have a situation where a board isn't you feel like just not listening to you on a on a stewardship issue how do you get them to come to the table how do you get them to listen to your point of view
1: this is a journey i think it's about building trust first and foremost right you start very often we've asked for access to boards where the pushback has been well what are you you're just going to come to the board and complain about the stock price I said no we want to understand how the board works and we want to think long term and we want to partner with you and, and and you build that trust then you start to be able to bring forward issues and have open conversations about a topic. We talk to managements, but we'll engage with the board. We'll ask in some cases for access to independent directors. It may result in writing a letter to the board or voting against directors to make a point and collaborating with the market more broadly as well, as all as ways to sort of encourage progress.
0: So do you think the fact that you have positioned the fund as you know seeking out exemplary stewards to invest in causes you know, companies to engage with you differently? I mean, do they welcome your engagement in a way perhaps they might not with other investors?
1: I think there is value in focusing on the long term. So when your questions are high level, strategic, and appreciate the difficulty of the decisions that are being made in the boardroom, I think that does build that trust. And it provides a window for companies to engage on a topic in a more meaningful way.
0: That's interesting. And I'd like to come on to now to the relationship between stewardship and a, a sort of an acronym that's in a way much more commonly used at the moment, which is ESG. So how, from your perspective, is stewardship the same as or different from ESG?
1: I think it's a great question. So in my mind, ESG is a set of factors, mm-hmm. whereas stewardship is holistic. It's about identifying material ESG risks, but it's also about engaging with key stakeholders. And so stewardship is about leadership and oversight of ESG risks, and it's about recognizing the value and the role of key stakeholders. So it, to me, it's, it's a much more complex concept than just the ESG risk factors, which are could be seen as a laundry list of, of topics. Right, I see.
0: So it's categories as opposed to an overall approach to investment. And in, kind of in that context, I, I mean, I've heard you say that a lot of ESG funds you know, just tend to look like growth funds masquerading as ESG funds, which is a phrase I rather liked. What are the characteristics of a true ESG fund then, in your view?
1: Well, I mean, maybe putting that question on head, is what is it that's not a true ESG company that sometimes masquerades as an ESG company is is when it's really easy because of you're a tech company to have low scope one and two measures, and therefore you look great on an environmental footprint, or you have in other ways, what I call accidental tourists in the ESG space. To us, a true ESG company is one that has a purpose and a stakeholder mindset that's outcomes-oriented and that's holistic in the approach to their impact and their need for a social license to operate.
0: So that means that the whole question of sort of measurement of ESG becomes quite relevant here. because I mean, this whole question and the use of ESG ratings and so on is kind of a hot, even a controversial topic. And I've heard you speak before about the importance of qualitative as well as quantitative and metric driven assessment when looking at ESG. And I think that really aligns to what you've just said about what is and isn't ESG. So how do you go about this and what role do you see for ESG ratings in the analysis that you do?
1: So, you know, there is information on ESG ratings, but it's a starting point. It's not an ending point. Ratings are often backward looking. They're biased towards ESG data transparency rather than outcomes or ambition. You, know, you can release data on diversity. That doesn't mean you are managing for diversity or you have an ambition or a credible strategy on that front. And the other problem that I have with ESG ratings is that they're subjective, right? So how do you balance diversity on a board versus a company's carbon footprint? If you add more women, can you pollute more and get the same rating? I mean, it, it sounds really silly, right? But there's truth to that because you are rolling a lot of subjective factors up into one number or one rating. And so, you know, that's an absurd question, but it highlights the challenge of rolling up that data. So again, ESG ratings have a role, but it, it's a starting point and you have to be quantitative and qualitative in your assessment of true mm. ESG merit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've heard that similar debate. quite often before around tesla for example you know are they great because they're transforming the ev industry and making evs cool or or should we worry about their governance and you know how do we trade these things off so i i agree with you there has to be a a qualitative view on this otherwise you get kind of absurd answers on a similar theme some people like you know bob Eccles see the work of the International Sustainability Standards Board, the newly formed body, in producing harmonised approaches to sustainability accounting is as being really a critical factor to make progress on sustainability. I mean, others like my colleague Alex Edmonds here at London Business School worried that a focus on what can be measured can kind of crowd out other hugely important qualitative factors. But for you as an investor, how do you see the importance of harmonisation and the ISSB's efforts in this area?
1: So I do think we need comparability. You have to start somewhere, even if it is imperfect. perfect. I think about this in the context that some of our US companies, we encourage them to disclose uh, EEO1 data, which is a very standardized approach to disclosing ethnic diversity by job level, but it's standardized. So, you know, every industry is is not going to fit exactly into these data measures. And we've argued with companies and said, you know, we realize that it's imperfect, we realize you don't manage this way, but give us something that allows us a starting point to stack you up versus your peers. And then we appreciate that you look at this differently, and we are assessing you holistically from a top-down approach to diversity. And that's one example where imperfect data, again, still gives you a good starting point to start to triage and do your research.
0: Okay. And I'd like to come on to a, a slightly different topic now, which is around the growth of index funds. And, you know, they of necessity, take a, a more formulaic approach to ESG issues. And, and I think, you know, views are divided on whether they actually really can do stewardship in the way that you've described it earlier. And do you think there's an inherent conflict between index funds and stewardship? Or is there, as, as some people argue, a kind of a symbiosis where you have index funds who can focus on market-wide issues because they invest in everybody? like? I don't know, separation of chair and CEO, for example, where they're best placed to influence. But equally, they can lend their support to active managers who are better equipped to assess more specialized company-specific issues. I mean, how do you see the role of index versus active funds? And and do you ever find yourself working collaboratively with index funds in any way?
1: So, I mean, you know, the, the big shortcoming of an index fund is that they lack divestment as a tool. But that doesn't mean that they can't use voting and proxy voting to send a message. And I'm really excited to see how proxy voting is evolving in this uh, concept of holding directors to account in a way that historically you voted for a director on whether they were overboarded or not, and you kind of stopped there. Now, if there's not diversity on the board, you can vote against the chair of the nominations and governance committee, or you you can hold uh, the chair of a committee to account for lack of environmental disclosure on scope one and two. I mean, these are tools that we're using as an industry much more actively today than ever in the past. And index funds certainly have that same capacity to use those tools and to send those messages. So I think as an industry, we have to keep pushing for higher standards and, and hold that bar high. And and whether you are passive or active, I think that's a responsibility that we bear as fiduciaries.
0: Okay, so I mean, that suggests that you feel there's kind of a role for both types of investor in supporting stewardship. But I, I guess it, going back to what you were saying earlier around the kind of way that you look at stewardship on a on a company specific basis do you find that the issues that you focus on are just inherently company specific or are there some key themes that you see as being common across your engagements in the next five or ten years
1: I think it's both right I mean certainly there are specific areas of focus for every company we have the privilege of being active investors and we can really do the deep research on a company understand what's material and where the challenges are whether that's supply chain issues or deforestation challenges, those will be very company specific topics. But there certainly are industry and broad structural themes that will impact our investment work as well. So we say two things very importantly, One, there is no such thing as a perfect company. And two, that ESG is not static. And so, you know, this past year, there's been a huge amount of pressure to rebalance capital allocation between shareholders and the labor force, right? Because there is wage inflation and there's huge competition for talent. And that's something that, you know, from a timeliness perspective, we need to spend time on today in terms of engaging with our companies. So you do end up with very broad themes across the portfolio.
0: I'd like to maybe dive in a bit more detail into a couple of um, stewardship issues that are particularly topical right now. And one is climate change, which is, I think, a great example of the kind of systemic risk that investors are being asked to act upon. You know, the idea, I guess, being that investors are acting in their clients' ultimate interest by dealing with an issue that could be damaging to the market as a whole, even if you know that action isn't always beneficial to individual High carbon emitting companies. And indeed, I see Wellington has signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, which includes a goal of net zero in line with Paris by 2050 uh, and a goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. I'm interested in the question about whether you think your mandate to act on climate issues is whether you see it as being driven by increasing returns for your investors, or is it more driven by your clients' express preferences for how they want their money to? be invested? So, for example, are they telling you that they wanted invested to align with 1.5 degrees, even if that costs them in terms of returns?
1: I think it's both, right? These considerations are increasingly aligned if you extend your time horizon. Physical and transition risk is growing and, and clients may want action now, but companies that don't act today are delaying future transition costs. So I don't see it as an either or.
0: But I mean, there is an issue, and maybe I'm just not thinking this through very clearly, but I'm not a climate scientist, but it's looking to me that it's less and less likely that we will actually limit global warming to 1.5 degrees about you know if I listen to people who know what they're talking about on this issue but on the other hand, you know two degrees looks like an achievable goal if, if we do get our act together. But ultimately listed investors by their actions alone can't really control this because you know what the indian chinese russian us kind of governments do you know as well as us here are really going to determine the outcome so if we get to a point where two degrees is most realistic as an outcome yet investors are invest in a way that's aligned with one and a half degrees as required by the net zero asset managers initiative isn't that likely to lead to misallocation of capital from the client's perspective because you'll be investing on an economic scenario that not likely to come to pass. So how does this get squared with fiduciary duty? And even kind of taking it to extreme, some academics have argued that fiduciaries should be investing in oil stocks as a hedge against governments taking insufficient action against climate change. I mean, that might be a little bit of an extreme position. But, you know, this question about how you align fiduciary duty when actually there's uncertainty about the outcome, how do you look at the question of fiduciary duty in that context?
1: Well, I, I think what you've presented is a, is a classic prisoner's dilemma, right? And, and if we ultimately want to live on a, a planet with access to resources and, and with lower physical climate risk, then I mean, everybody has to do their part. So while some players may not move as quickly as others, uh, it doesn't change the direction of travel. So whether a company is spending money on innovation to create products that are less carbon intensive, or whether they are engaging with their supply chain and helping that supply chain transition to renewable energy sources, I mean, those all, Are things that are going to have to happen. So you're going to do it sooner, or you're going to do it later. And I feel that the company's ability to be resilient and to adapt is going to be stronger if you do that today, ahead of regulation, ahead of carbon pricing, ahead of all of this barrage of of intervention to help force that outcome that we're looking for. So to me, again, this prisoner's dilemma is, is a flawed approach to the challenge. We want to own companies that are Using their excess returns to reinvest in their stakeholders, and that includes the planet.
0: That's interesting. So, I mean, uh, you know, how I'm interpreting that is that you know, even if we ultimately don't get to 1.5 degrees, companies that have sort of learned by doing earlier and have innovated earlier are probably going to be better positioned for whatever world we're in, assuming that we don't totally give up on uh, on on addressing climate change, which hopefully we we won't. And I suppose that also contains the seeds of of an answer to my next question, which relates to science-based targets, which are often being requested of of companies by investors that they adopt science-based targets. And in crude terms, these require all companies in industry to to kind of squeeze emissions down by a common date. However, we know that in practice, the path to net zero is going to be really lumpy, driven by innovations at certain points that are probably going to drive discontinuities maybe through new entrants and incumbents going out of business and how useful do you think ultimately investor pressure on incumbents for adopt science-based targets is is going to end up being to address climate change as opposed to, I don't know, government-sponsored industry targets and investments in innovation?
1: Climate risk is is a real tangible risk and we need all of these measures, right? Some companies may benefit more from some of these measures in that transition than others. So they push companies to take a holistic view towards their carbon footprint. And that includes engaging with their supply chain and innovation and reducing their carbon footprint so that they contribute to a more circular economy. And, you know, that is a critical role for science based targets in pushing companies to better carbon footprints.
0: Yeah, that does link back to what you were saying before, really, which is that even if we don't know the precise path, we know the direction of travel and incentives that, you know, push companies to sort of think about these issues and innovate will ultimately help us get on the path. So diversity is a second area I'd like to come on to, where there's a fair bit of controversy between academics and practitioners. So on the one hand, um, practitioners and even standard setters like the Financial Conduct Authority, um, NASDAQ, the Financial Reporting Council, take it as a given that diversity leads to improved performance. And studies like the McKinsey Diversity Wins Study is often quoted. But on the other hand we've got very reputable academics pointing out the flaws in the McKinsey studies and saying that when you look at the best quality evidence the claimed financial benefits of diversity just don't show up in the numbers and the, and the common consensus about why that is is that it's probably because diversity is is kind of more complex in a numbers game and it's much harder to achieve inclusion throughout an organization to make diversity effective. So it's clearly a kind of a complicated and contested area. But how do you see this issue from an investor perspective? Is diversity for you a financial issue, a moral issue, or is it something else? And how do you see your mandate for engaging on the topic?
1: So you're right, Tom, that the empirical evidence around diversity is mixed. But for us, it's a belief statement. And it's clear that if you... Bring together in a room a lot of folks with the same background, went to the same school, and and the same country club. That you're not going to get a, a huge amount of challenge in the room, and and challenge is the source in our view of improved outcomes, right? It, it's bringing difference of perspective together and improving the ability to debate and look at all aspects of a challenge before coming to a conclusion.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting, and I, and I think that obviously supports the case for diversity and. You know, the flip side to that is that if you don't have sort of a culture of inclusion, then actually those diverse views just kind of get rejected and you, and you have friction. And, and I've heard you speak in quite an interesting way elsewhere about how you engage with companies on what they're doing in, on diversity, which really goes a long way beyond just looking at effectively ball quotas in the way that we see some index funds doing. Could you just say a bit more about how you engage on diversity in practice? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier around the information that you asked for, but, but maybe you could expand on that.
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely, what is the tone from the top and what is the culture and the approach to diversity and inclusion? So it is, you know, we talk a lot about transparency, but just giving diversity statistics is not the answer, right? Where does a company set its ambition and how credible is the plan for how they're getting there? So we talked to companies about where they source talent, how they're widening those uh, channels for sourcing talent, how they're finding more diverse backgrounds and different ethnicities and gender, how they're encouraging that talent, making them feel included at a company and how managers are assessed for their support of diverse members of their team. It, It needs to be top down driven, inclusive and backed by a culture of inclusivity.
0: So what benefits do you see coming from um, that engagement?
1: I think there's a huge amount of insight that you can get into how a company ultimately values its employees, how they are building loyalty and trust. And so you get lower turnover over time. You get happier employees. You see that in engagement scores. And that should ultimately pay off in employees that are more engaged, happier, more creative and more innovative.
0: I'd now like to come on to um, the whole debate around stakeholder capitalism. There's a big discussion at the moment about the role of companies and, by extension, investors in addressing societal issues. And I hear you very much framing the stakeholder discussion in the context of long-term shareholder value, so a company that, that really understands and takes into account the views of its stakeholders is more likely to create sustainable long-term value. Is that fundamentally how you see it?
1: Our investment philosophy is based on the idea that investing in material stakeholders contributes to long-term returns, whether that's investing in your employees and building a talent pipeline so that you have more customer loyalty and lower turnover costs, whether that is investing in R&D and that innovation pipeline, or whether that's investing in a, a lower carbon footprint or fewer uh, environmental externalities. Again, all of that should create a flywheel. So those excess returns reinvested in turn boost those returns and create both lower earnings volatility and lower cost of capital over time. And that is what builds on um, the investment case for our portfolio.
0: Of course, when many people talk about stakeholder capitalism, what they really mean is prioritising stakeholder interests over those of shareholders in certain circumstances, so that it's a bit more of a, an or rather than an, an and. Can you envisage a situation where you would press a company to take a stakeholder-oriented action that was just straightforwardly costly to shareholder value over the longer term? An example could be persuading an investee company to mothball rather than sell a dirty asset or uh, to keep an uneconomic loss-making factory open to maintain employment in a community where it was an anchor employer. Uh, Can you ever see yourselves encouraging a trade-off like that?
1: I think those are false economies. They might work in the short term, but what you're doing is cross-subsidizing stakeholders. And over the long term, you're not maximizing outcomes. So I think it's really important to still make strong capital allocation decisions and think of it in the context of uh, long term returns. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't encourage a company in year one to invest more in wages because paying your workforce today and adjusting for inflation is really critical. And that may cost returns for a period of time. But over the long term, that should benefit the company. I think keeping a factory open in an uneconomic context is is ultimately not productive for the long-term success of the company in question.
0: The Center for Corporate Governance and the Investor Forum recently co-authored a report called What Does Stakeholder Capitalism Mean for Investors? This came after a year-long series of discussions with investors where the central issue we discussed was how investors can balance and best evaluate the myriad stakeholder issues they face. Issues like climate change, human rights, diversity, while at the same time fulfilling their client mandates and fiduciary duty. You were part of the group of investors that we spoke with. What stood out to you the most from the project?
1: ESG focuses a lot on, on material ESG considerations, and that's really about risk. What I think is interesting here is turning that equation on its head and focusing really on material stakeholders. And that's a far more positive and constructive approach. And it stresses the importance of trade offs, right? Investing in your people or investing in the planet for long term outcomes. And that balance, to me, is is critical. And it's what we look to empowered boards and strong management teams to be debating and discussing. And it just really drives home the importance of that decision-making process about those difficult trade-offs.
0: In the report, we recommended that investors should evaluate stakeholder initiatives against three principles when considering taking action. First, the stakeholder should be material. Second, the investor should have efficacy on the issue, meaning a reasonable prospect to bringing about change. And third, the investor should have comparative advantage to take the proposed action uh, relative to other parties. From your perspective, could this triple test framework help investors in their decision making on stakeholder issues? And if so, how? And, and what might some of the challenges of implementing the framework be?
1: It certainly is useful, but I also think investors should always feel empowered to add their voice. They may not always have the best comparative advantage. That doesn't mean that they don't have weight to their voice because they are providers of capital. And so I I do think these conversations need to be consistent parts of long-term two-way dialogue with companies.
0: Within this triple test, the concept of materiality was identified as very important. There's growing acknowledgement that the traditional approach of financial materiality, where where a stakeholder affects the financial prospects of a company, needs to be broadened. And we need to think also about where a company has an impact on stakeholders, regardless of whether or not there's a reciprocal financial impact. We developed a framework for thinking about that in the report. But how do you think about materiality and stakeholder issues? And how do you factor that into decision making?
1: So again, we we use a scorecard and think through all of the stakeholders and how a company is, is taking care of those stakeholders and valuing those stakeholders' needs. It's an important part of our process. But again, materiality is more than financial, as you say. There are a lot of considerations that go into whether a topic is of importance to us to engage with a company on. And it really is about whether outcomes could be better if certain actions were taken. And and that might be as simple as separation of chair and CEO, where really the tangible effects of financial materiality are hard to grasp day one. But when it comes to a chair that oversees an executive, if that is one and the same person, how do you plan for succession? How do you know if you have the right skills in place for the next stage of a company's growth and evolution? And so- that's a really material, in our view, issue to address. It might be about investing in innovation and and how do we assess how a company thinks about the importance of that factor versus other allocation of capital. And again, another really important and material consideration for stakeholders and how you build talent and whether talent is properly rewarded. So, We do use a framework for this, but it needs to be flexible, it needs to be qualitative, and it needs to focus on outcomes that are relevant both for the stakeholder and for the company in question. And
0: and given that need for flexibility because stakeholder issues kind of are fast evolving, how can you ensure, how can investors ensure that their clients are, are fully informed and engaged with the process about how the investor is acting on some of these stakeholder
1: issues? I mean, I think communication is critical, right? I think we bear a duty of responsibility as asset managers to be transparent, to write up our engagements, to share the story of where we're we're doing our research and how those outcomes are being measured. Increasingly, we're focused on KPIs. I don't think that's the whole answer. You can get overly invested in a lot of measurement that is questionable, And it is a collaborative impact that comes from the broader investment community. And I think it is hard for any one fund to take credit for any one action at a company.
0: And so then a a final question, which kind of links to that question of impact. And um, we had a principle of of efficacy, as I mentioned, within the three-part test we developed. And there is a burgeoning interest in sustainable investing. But at the same time, there's a burgeoning concern about greenwashing and in particular funds claiming to be sustainable, but without really changing anything in the real world. So for investors who want to both make a good return to secure their own financial future, but at the same time want to have a positive impact on the world in how they achieve that, what are the key things that they should be looking out for in an asset manager?
1: Well, I think first we've identified from the outset that negative screening will take out your worst performers, but it's not going to identify your, your best performance with the most positive impact. Uh, and so you know, looking for an asset manager that is active and inclusive in their strategy is really important. Does the asset manager have access to management to create um, the engagements and the outcomes? Is there focus and deep research behind how investments are being made. So again, to avoid that greenwashing challenge. And is there value, trust and, and relationship building happening between the asset manager and corporates to keep that positive flywheel?
0: Well, that's a great kind of checklist of issues that you know, both individual and institutional investors can use. And so, Jolanda, thanks for a great discussion. Really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure.